Hello and welcome to the Monobank History of Scotland podcast, a series of comedy podcasts all about Scotland's history, even if a guest, which is, uh, my name is Daniel, Daniel Downey, I am a stand-up comedian based in Edinburgh, I am your host and I do a thing here in the city, I, uh, I run a comedy walking tour of Edinburgh called the Montebank Comedy Walk of Edinburgh and what I do is I take people around the city, I show them the sights, I tell them the history and I try and make them laugh while I'm doing it. Now the reason I'm telling you this is because that is what this podcast is, that is what these series of podcasts are all about is I'm trying to give Scottish history the Montebank treatment. So hopefully as you listen to this you'll laugh a bit and you'll learn a bit as well. Uh, today's podcast is all about the reigns of the first Stuart monarchs, Robert II and Robert III. Now, Robert II, he was a man who, despite being well past his best, continued to tour Scotland until he was 74 years old. He had 20 children, 20 children, through two marriages, and was, for all intent purposes, utter shite. Rod Stewart very much modelled his career on that of Rod II. And Robert III, he's a king who had to give up power to his son after he was kicked by a horse, and his son, Prince David, he had to be very, very weary of a predatory uncle. So, you know, just like William and Harry in that respect. His uncle, Robert the Duke of Albany, he wanted power for himself, and he would eventually rule the country as an uncrowned ruler who would run the affairs of the country in the place of the king, kind of like Dominic Cummings in that respect. And Albany would rule unchallenged in Scotland for 14 years, kind of like Celtic during the, the banter years. Now listen, if this is the first time you've listened to the Montebank History of Scotland podcast, this is the sort of thing that you should expect, alright? It's a lot of Scottish history with a lot of Tory bashing and jobby jokes. If that sounds like your thing, you're going to enjoy it. If this is the first time that you have listened to the podcast, can I suggest you go back to the first episode? I don't really talk about anything topical on the podcast. They all go in kind of chronological order and each one will provide a little bit of background into what I'm talking about in the next episode. So, cool. Without further ado, here you are, folks. There's your podcast all about Robert II and Robert III. I do hope you enjoy it. Have fun out there. And I shall see you on the other side. Enjoy! Robert Stewart, the steward, was the nephew of David II, the son of Robert the Bruce's daughter, Marjorie, and uh, one of Robert Bruce's key lieutenants, Walter Stewart, the steward. He was the first of the most famously successful, unsuccessful Scottish royal dynasties, the Stuarts. Robert Stewart was crowned Robert II at Schoon Palace on the 26th of March 1371. He was 55 years old and was an astute and experienced politician at the head of a family of 11. Through his two marriages to Elizabeth Muir and then Marjorie Bruce, Robert Stewart had five surviving legitimate sons and seven daughters and at least eight illegitimate sons. He is Scottish history's Paul Brune. Now, if you don't know who Paul Brune is, Paul Brune is the head of a, a famous Scottish fictional comic book family of 11 known as the Brunes. There's Ma Brune, Paul Brune, Grandpa Brune, Hen Brune, Joe Brune, Horace Brune, Maggie Brune, Daphne Brune, and then there's the kids whose names you never learn, the twins and the bairn, and they're, they're kind of like Donald Trump's kids, you know, the ones that he doesn't give a fuck about, so he just starts naming them Donald Jr. or the Baron, you know what I mean, like the members of his family that he doesn't actually want to pump, you can. That's what comics here in Scotland consist of, you know, like a family of 12 from Dundee, that's our Justice League, and to be fair, Dundee is usually top when it comes to Justice Leagues in Scotland. 
You know, like, if American kids grew up on stories, right, of the Avengers battling aliens in space using superpowers and all that, see here in Scotland, we grew up on stories of Ma Brune's confrontation with her neighbour over whose turn it was to wash the stairs. Robert II is yet another Scottish king with a pretty terrible reputation, a reputation even more unflattering than that of his predecessor, David II. Robert II's best days were behind him when he ascended to the throne, and he was hampered by a debilitating eye condition, which although it still allowed him to drive to Barnum Castle, his eyes would, would often swell up and render him blind, making it difficult to effectively govern the country, especially during hay fever season. Throughout his time as guardian, Robert, he had used his family to build a power base through marriages and through sons-in-law, and by the mid-1390s, 12 of the 16 earldoms in Scotland were in the Stuart family control. This placed Robert at the head of a powerful family and his three eldest sons, John, Robert and Alexander, were all ambitious, competitive and power-hungry. Robert II was all too aware of the problems a disputed succession could cause, having lived through the drama of David II's reign and Edward Balliol's attempted usurpation of the throne. And so, the day after his succession, he named his son by his first wife, Elizabeth Muir, John, Earl of Carrick, and now Steward of Scotland, as his successor. John already had two daughters, but to ensure a male heir, in 1373, an elaborate act of succession was passed by the Scottish Parliament that would ensure a male succession to the throne. Because the last thing we wanted in Scotland was a female ruler who could communicate effectively with the nation and had a consistently high approval rating, am I right, lads? Now, the Act said that if John did not produce a male heir, then the crown would pass to the nearest male heirs of his brothers, Robert the Earl of Fife, Alexander the Lord of Badenich, David the Earl of Strathairn, or Walter the Earl of Caithness. And since John had no male children, it meant that at the time of Robert II's coronation, the heir to the throne was Murdoch, the eldest son of Robert the Earl of Fife. John and his wife Isabella Drummond did eventually have a son David in 1378 and James in 1394, who would become the future James I. But the birth of John's male heirs did little to stop the power wrangling and rivalry with his siblings. There was sizable support in the north of Scotland for Robert II's third son, Alexander, the Lord of Badenich, or the Wolf of Badenich, as he was better known. And if Gladiators has taught us anything, it is that Wolf is the most unpredictable of the bunch. And that certainly turned out to be the case with Alexander. At the end of the 14th century, the cultural divide between Highland and Lowland Scotland was wider than ever before. The English-speaking Lowlands was considered cultured and civilised, while the Gaelic-speaking Highland clans were wild, barbaric and out of control. Ironic, isn't it? You know, like, Gaelic speakers are now by far and away the most middle class. Do you know what I mean? Like, we Fackersons and Seamuses from Mulgai learning their Gaelic. There's no many Levi's, Masons and Cruises kicking about the Gaelic school. I can promise you that, folks. And at this time... The Highland chieftains, they had incredible power. They employed private armies known as Catherines to impose their will on neighbouring clans. Alexander's role as the King's Lieutenant of Northern Scotland was to bring these clans under control and under the rule of the Crown. But, like, 
every episode of Line of Duty that's ever been written. Instead of bringing the North under royal control, instead, Alexander employed his own personal Catarans and made himself the most powerful man in the North of Scotland. Alexander famously burned down the spectacular Elgin Cathedral, the finest cathedral in Scotland, the Lantern of the North as it was known, a title presumably he decided to take literally. On the 17th of June 1390, he had the cathedral burned down after a dispute with the Earl of Murray and the Bishop of Murray over who had authority over the area. This was before the RAF were running the place. The dispute also had to do with Alexander's constant shagging around and cheating on his wife, Euphema, the Countess of Ross, who demanded the return of her family's lands from her unfaithful husband. Now, Alexander, he's got this undeserved reputation for heroism and for being a, a fantastic leader thanks to a historical romance novel written by Sir Thomas Dick Lauder in the 19th century. He was, he's got this undeserved reputation for being a great leader despite the fact that he was, in fact, a massive prick. Alexander the Wolf of Badenich is basically the late 14th century's Winston Churchill. Despite Alexander's power in the north, the real power struggle was between Robert II's eldest son and heir, John the Earl of Carrick, and his second son, Robert the Earl of Fife. A propaganda battle broke out between the two, and it was a battle that was won by John after he employed ye old Cambridge Analytica. John, he had the support of the most powerful family in the borders, the Douglases, and he had built up a powerful vice-regal power base in southern Scotland. John was the constable of Edinburgh Castle. This made him one of the wealthiest men in the country, as it meant that he could charge people £18 every time they wanted to come and visit him. John and the Douglases, they were ratcheting up tensions with the English in the borders, where the English still held key strongholds such as Berwick, Roxburgh and Jedburgh castles. But Scotland, for the first six years of Robert II's reign, had peace with England. This was mainly due to the ageing Edward III, but when he was succeeded by his ten-year-old grandson Richard II in 1377, England became increasingly aggressive once again, and by the mid-1380s, war with England looked inevitable. And with war with England looming, it was felt that Robert II would be unable to conduct the war vigorously enough. This coupled with his inability to control the Highland clans or his son Alexander the Wolf of Badenich, led to a successful palace coup in November 1384. The General Council, they voted to remove royal enforcement from Robert II and handed the running of the kingdom over to John. Robert II was still king, but he had fuck all power and nothing to do. You know, like the Queen. They had put him out on gardening leave, or garden party leave, I suppose. And with John now wielding power, his biggest supporters, the Douglases, they intensified tensions with England and they began raids into Northern England. In June 1385, as part of the 1295 Treaty of Paris, the French sent an expeditionary force to Scotland to assist in the fight against England. But it wasn't much of an entente cordiale. The French troops, they complained about their billets, they complained about their food, and they resented the guerrilla tactics the new guardian John and his border rebel allies adopted when raiding the north of England. They wanted chivalric glory through opened pitch battle against England. They didn't want to play the long ball, basically. They insisted on employing tactics they knew would result in defeat just so that they could be seen to be principled. They were kind of like the Labour Party, I suppose. 
But I take issue with the fact that they didn't like the food or the digs. First of all, there is nothing wrong with staying at Granny's Heel and Hame. Nobody is above the Hame, alright? And also, we only invented haggis because we were trying to find something disgusting that they would eat. You know, like haggis was just our attempt at making patty to try and keep them happy. And in response to the raids of Northern England, Richard II marched unopposed through southern Scotland in the summer of 1385, burning Dryborough and Melrose abbeys and, uh, and burning Edinburgh and St Giles Cathedral before returning triumphantly to England. And the French, they vowed never to return to Scotland, unless, of course, it was on the side of the English. The ease with which the English had marched into Scotland alarmed the Scots. The enemy, they had marched through areas of lowland and central Scotland. It should never have been allowed to enter, just like an orange walk. And it forced Scotland into making a truce with England, because, you know, when the going gets tough, the tough get trucing. But the truth, the truce, I should say, it was just as welcome in England as much as it was in Scotland. Richard II, he was still a minor and he was facing a rebellion from his uncle, the Duke of Gloucester. But as soon as that three-year truce with England ended, the border raids, they began again. And under the leadership of James Douglas, the Earl of Douglas, who was John's brother-in-law, one of these raids into, the, into Northumberland in England in the summer of 1388 would be immortalised as one of the most famous flamboyant and chivalrous battles ever fought between Scotland and England, the Battle of Otterburn, which was fought on the 19th of August, 1388. James Douglas's rival in the north of England was Henry Hotspur Percy. And in keeping with the Hotspur name, Henry would lose the Battle of Otterburn. And Henry Percy, he was the heir of the Earl of Northumberland and was leading the English forces in a skirmish between the English garrison and the raiding Scots outside of the walls of Newcastle. And during the exchanges, James Douglas managed to snatch the silk pennon from Henry Hotspur Percy's lance and Douglas withdrew and headed for Scotland. Percy, vowing that his standard would never be taken into Scotland, gave chase to the Scots forces and set off in pursuit of Douglas. His force of around 8,000 men caught up with Douglas at Otterburn, about 30 miles north of Newcastle. Now, the Scots were expecting Percy to pursue them, but they were surprised by the speed of the pursuit. This is despite the fact the guy's name was Hotspur, for fuck's sake. Anyway, despite the fact his men were tired and hungry from the long pursuit, Hotspur launched straight into an attack and vicious hand-to-hand -hand fighting began in the evening gloaming, and the two sides continued fighting in the moonlight. Um, which is actually a top-loader B-side. The Scots were assisted by the fact that it was too dark for the English to use their feared longbows. Eventually, James Douglas fell, exhausted by innumerable wounds, and knowing he was fatally wounded, but also knowing that the battle was almost won, he dragged himself behind a bush so that his men wouldn't know he had fallen and wouldn't see him die. And as dawn broke, Percy was eventually surrounded, but he only agreed to surrender to the man by the bracken bush, the dead James Douglas. Um, incidentally, the man by the bracken bush sounds like a shite James Bond film title, doesn't it? So say so uh, Percy surrendered to a bush like he was Saddam Hussein, and the Battle of Otterburn was won by the Scots. And the battle is remembered in a similar light as the Charge of the Light Brigade, a kind of flamboyant, chivalric battle, horrifically violent and vile, but because it was done by middle-class people, it's considered brilliant and brave and cultured, just like an Edinburgh fringe play. 
The Battle of Otterburn would be the most agitated anyone would ever get over a silk pennant until changing rooms and hotspur Lewenin Bowen. The Scots may have won at Otterburn, losing only 200 men to the English 2000, but the death of James Douglas caused big problems for John the Earl of Carrick and his southern power base. The network of allegiances John had created in southern Scotland they began to fall apart after wrangling claims over the now vacant Douglas Earldom. And things went from bad to worse for John when he suffered a debilitating kick from a horse at a jousting tournament in the same year. And John, he couldn't expect much sympathy from the king, his father Robert II, after the king's deposition by his eldest son in 1384. And when the Royal Council met in December 1388, they vowed to, or they voted, sorry, to remove royal authority from John, blaming him for failing to deal with the threat from the English in the borders and for being unable to pacify the Highlands. John was replaced by his younger brother, Robert, the Earl of Fife, who now exerted the king's authority in Scotland. Robert was the most capable of Robert II's children and he governed Scotland well for 32 years, ruling as regent and then as the Duke of Albany when John's son and uh, Robert's nephew, James became James I, but was imprisoned in England. Robert II died not long after Robert the Earl of Fife took over royal authority or royal control of the kingdom. This meant John would become king, although it was decided that royal authority should remain with his younger brother Robert. Robert II died at Dundonald Castle in Ayrshire in April 1390. He was 74 years old, and despite his sons laterally exercising executive control over the kingdom, he was active in his royal duties right up until his death. Just before his death, he had completed a royal circuit of the northeast. Now, there was a four-month gap between Robert II's death and John's coronation at Schoon, during which time it was decided that John should change his name. The name John was associated with the reign of unfortunate English and French kings, and if John was to be King of Scotland as King John, it would make him King John II, legitimising the reign of John Balliol and letting in a potential Balliol claim to the Bruce Stroke Stuart reign and reviving English claims to the Scottish crown. So... John was anointed at Schoon on the 14th of August 1390 as Robert III. There was continued opposition to Robert III's reign, however, from supporters of his brothers. Alexander was still doing his Ned Stark, I'm the most powerful man in the North thing. And despite King Robert III, or despite John Robert now being Robert III, he didn't have power, his brother, Robert the Earl of Fife, retained executive control over the kingdom and he was more ambitious and more ruthless than ever before. Robert III's main priority became safeguarding the succession and reasserting at least some sort of royal control. For his son and heir presumptive David, Robert III created a power base making him Earl of Carrick and in February 1393, the General Council terminated Robert, Earl of Fife's guardianship and royal authority was reinstated to Robert III, a lot of which was exerted by his son and heir David. Robert, Earl of Fife and Robert III, stroke John, had swapped royal authority now like neighbours swapping cups of sugar. But Robert III had a lot on his plate when he retook royal control, royal control in 1393. The Highlands were by the end of the 14th century running out of control and the General Council lamented the lack of royal authority over the Highland chieftains and Alexander the Wolf of Badenoch. The more the king was seen to be incapable of bringing the Highlands under, the, under control, the more his royal credibility eroded. 
Robert III had little control over any part of his kingdom, and it was through this desperation to exert, or at least be seen to exert, some control that Robert III became involved in the most bizarre event of his reign and one of the most bizarre events in Scottish history, the Battle on the Inch, which was fought in September 1396. The Battle on the Inch was a public battle fought in Perth between two feuding clans, the Chattons and the Keys. Robert III ordered that their feud be settled by hand-to-hand combat in a contest open to the public. Each side was allowed to pick 30 of their best warriors in a fight to the death. This is what I assume the Australians based their Aussie rules football on. Do you know what I mean? Because any time I've watched that sport, it seems to me like it's a 30-a-side battle to the death, you know? Stands, they were erected for the viewing public to give it that old firm kind of vibe. And Prince David acted as umpire, playing the Douglas Ross rule. It was an incredible spectacle, the likes of which had not been seen since ancient Rome. The 60 champions, they were not allowed armour, their only protection was a leather targe, like a shield. They were allowed a sword, a dirk, which is like a, a dagger, and a crossbow with three arrows. This also incidentally happens to be the items that you will find in the in one of the Scottish government's baby boxes, do you know what I mean, which provides Scottish children with everything they will need to survive in Scotland. Now, before the battle, Clan Chatton found themselves a man down, either through sickness or cowardness, and Clan K were unwilling to make a substitution. So a local blacksmith, a guy by the name of Hal Gow, offered to take the place in return for being a kept man for life should he survive. But like Prince Philip. Now, throughout the long and bloody afternoon of hand-to-hand combat, Clan Chatton emerged victorious. The last remaining champion of Clan K jumped into the River Tay and made his escape. Chatton had won the contest and the volunteer was a kept man for life by the clan. And do you know what? I think they should settle Brexit the same way. Like, Brexiteers battling with their taps off and plastic chairs. Is that, you know, tends to be their weapon of choice, doesn't it? Robert III had hoped that the Battle on the Inch would break the clan's fighting spirit and help instill royal authority, but instead, the valour on display at the Battle on the Inch only added to the legend of the savage and courageous Highlander and did nothing to reconcile... Highlander with Lowlander. Through Robert III's early reign, Prince David was the rising political star. In 1398, at the age of 20, he was made Duke of Rothsey, and at the same time his uncle Robert, the Earl of Fife, was made Duke of Albany. These were the first dukedoms in Scotland. And it would be the starting gun between nephew and uncle for control over Scotland. In January 1399, the General Council ended Robert III's personal rule on account of his apparent inability to govern. Essentially, it was because of his physical incapacity after his kick-off of the horse. And David, the Duke of Rothsey, was made the King's Lieutenant, and he was guided by a council of 21, which was dominated by the Duke of Albany and his allies. The coup had been inspired by David's mother and Robert III's wife, Annabelle Drummond, who recognised that the best way of securing the kingdom was through their vigorous young son. In England, in July 1399, Henry Bolingbroke, the son of Edward III's son, John of Gaunt, returned from exile to lead a successful rebellion against Richard II. Richard II was forced to abdicate and died, most likely murdered, in the year 1400. Now, in the same year, David married into the powerful Douglas family, marrying Mary Douglas, the daughter of Archibald Douglas, the Earl of Douglas. And an alliance with the warlords who protected the borders from England was a sensible move, but David had married while already technically married to Elizabeth Dunbar, who was the daughter of the influential Earl of March. 
The marriage between David and Elizabeth, it required papal dispensation. Basically, what would happen, right, when you wanted to marry a blood relation, your cousin or something like that, you would require special dispensation from the Pope to get the go-ahead. You know, like the Pope, he had a desk full of requests from Scotland known as his Fife file. And papal dispensation had not been sought, so the couple separated in 1397 on the understanding that they would be married after a short period of time. Now, when the Earl of March heard of David's marriage to Mary, he was so enraged by the snub of his daughter that he switched sides to the welcoming arms of the newly anointed Henry IV. Then, in August 1400, a huge English army swept into Scotland unopposed, making it to Leith while the Scots forces retreated into Edinburgh Castle. Henry IV didn't press home his advantage. He merely wanted to make the point that he could step in and take over whenever he wanted. Kind of like Mike Ashley at Rangers, you know? The whole situation, the ease with which Henry IV had marched into Leith and the situation with the Earl of March had lost David a lot of faith. And things got even worse for him when one of his most influential advisors, his mother, Annabella Drummond, died in the year 1401. Without her influence and Robert III still incapacitated, David made some rash moves, seizing land, titles and revenues from his uncle supporters without consulting the council. These actions troubled the general council and put his shrewd uncle, the Duke of Albany, in a position to take full advantage. Albany had his nephew imprisoned while he was in St Andrews in late 1401. David was imprisoned at St Andrew's Castle along with his most prominent supporters, the Earl of Mar and the Earl of Douglas. Albany then had the young prince moved from St Andrew's to his castle in Falkland and Fife. The question was now what to do with David. His father Robert III was seemingly unable or unwilling to help his son. And for Albany, there was only really one course of action he could realistically take. Robert III was ageing and David would soon become the king and and inevitably seek revenge. So the only option was to have him killed. David died of apparent starvation in Falkland in March 1402. They'd Epstein the shit out of him, basically. Albany was never charged with treason. Instead, the council decreed that David had died by, inverted commas, divine providence. And since the king was still deemed incapable of ruling and the next in line, James, was only seven years old, Albany was chosen as guardian of Scotland once again. I tell you what, only the Tories since have managed to starve people to vet to death, convince everyone that starving to death is perfectly natural and still somehow remained in power. James was now Robert III's only surviving heir. The old king retreated to his castle in Rothsey and made James the Earl of Carrick, just as he had done so for David. Robert III gave his son Stuart Lands as a principality to be held out with the crown. James was then sent to St Andrews for his protection and in early 1406 he was taken as a figurehead in a disastrous raid by Robert III's supporters on Albany lands in the Lothians. Uh, The supporters of Robert III, they were easily routed by Albany's forces and the raids were a complete disaster. Really, they should have known, you know, like sending a miner to Andrews for his protection. It was never going to end well, was it? James had to be rowed to the safety of the Bass Rock, which is a, a rocky outpost off in the Firth of Forth, just off the coast of modern-day North Berwick, for his safety. James stayed on the Bass Rock for a month while a ship was arranged to pick him up and take him abroad. He was eventually picked up by a merchant ship taking wool from Leith to France, and by misfortune or by treachery, James's ship was intercepted by Norfolk pirates on the 22nd of March 1406 and the young prince was taken to the Tower of London. 
The king did not take the news well. And on the 4th of April, 1406, Robert III died at Rothsey Castle. Now, Robert III, he considered himself to be the worst king Scotland had ever seen. His dying wish was that he be buried in a midden, which is what he felt he deserved. And so they did the next big thing, the next best thing, and they buried him in Paisley. And with the heir to the throne, a captain in England, the Scottish Parliament had no choice but to continue with Robert, Duke of Albany, as governor and as regent. Albany would rule unchallenged for the next 14 years in Scotland until his death at the age of 81 in the year 1420. So that brings us to the end of the podcast, folks. Thank you so, so much for listening. I do hope you enjoyed the episode. Um, If you enjoyed this episode, then check out some of the other ones. It's the same thing. If you like this one, you'll like the rest as well. Uh, Give me a wee wee follow on social media. I'm on Instagram and Facebook and all that kind of stuff, at Montebank Tours. Always really, really appreciated. Uh, And you can actually contribute to the Montebank History of Scotland podcast. You can uh, buy me the equivalent of a of the price of a cup of coffee. Just go on to buymeacoffee.com. I'm on there at Montebank History of Scotland. And you can leave me like two, three quid. It's always, always appreciated. Or if you prefer, you can become a, a patron of the podcast and you can buy me the equivalent of a cup of coffee every single month to help, um, you know, contribute to the series. Again, I'm on there at patreon.com at Montebank History of Scotland. And a reminder that I don't keep the money. What I try to do is each week I try to raise enough money so that I can send someone deserving a bottle of whiskey so it can be absolutely anyone anyone who you think deserves a bottle of whiskey all you need to do is leave me a wee bit of money so I can buy the bottle um, you can leave a comment on buy me a coffee or patreon you can send me an email you can leave me a comment on social media or a DM just give me their sob story why they deserve a bottle of whiskey I choose one at random and that's it basically what I try to do is each week I tried to match what I've been talking about in the podcast with a malt whiskey from Scotland. Uh, and today I have gone with Glen Morangi. And uh, a couple of podcasts ago, I picked Glen Fiddick and I explained that Glen Fiddick basically was the was the whiskey that revitalised the malt whiskey industry in Scotland. And Glen Morangi are the, the ones that kind of rose to the rose to the beat, you know, that they took on Glenfiddich and when they seen the success of Glenfiddich they put some money into their own malt brands. So they're kind of the, the closest that I can think of of warring brothers, you know. So if uh, if Glenfiddich was John, then Glen Morangi would be Robert the Earl of Fife and I don't know, McCallan is probably Alexander the Wolf of Badenich. These were the first kind of malt brands to uh, to really step forward and make an impact. So it's a uh, it's a really easy drinking, delicious Highland dram. It's kind of fresh and sweet with a nice dry finish. Very very easy drinking. If you would like to nominate someone to receive a bottle of Glenmorangie, then you know what to do. Um, thank you so much. Give the podcast a wee like and a share. Tell your pals. Rate it. Do all the things that people ask you to do at the end of podcasts. Give me a wee follow on social media at Montebank Tours. Thank you so so much for listening, uh, and I hope to see you all next time. Cheerio now. Bye-bye.